And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great day when the Republican contest for the nomination for President of the United States is about to get serious. With the announcement this evening, right after this show, announcement by Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, the two-term governor of Florida, the guy who won by a landslide in a tough year for Republicans. Does he have the formula to actually win the presidency? And the first question is, uh, and most importantly, do you have the correct theory of how to try to topple Donald Trump? Uh, that's actually, I'm borrowing a line from a piece today by Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, of course, the editor of the National Review, who also writes for Politico. He has an important piece in the New York Times today. And uh, it's called He's Not Dead Yet. And it does say that uh, he'll be lavishly funded, meaning DeSantis. His favorable ratings remain quite high among Republicans. He can draw a crowd. He'll finally actually be in the race. And perhaps most important, it seems DeSantis has the correct theory of how to try to topple Mr. Trump. Okay, Mr. Rich Lowry, uh, <laughs> what's, what is that correct theory? How do you topple Donald Trump when he's <laughs> running so far ahead, according to the polls? Yeah, thank you, Michael. I never said it would be easy. <laughs> I, I never said he's the odds-on favorite. This is uh, it's going to be a tough slog for him. But uh, I think the idea you, you get to his right on substance and issues where he can. Some of that's going to be backwards-looking. You know, the response to COVID, the criminal justice bill reform bill that uh, Trump championed and signed while he was in office, failure to build the wall. And then some forward-looking issues as well. And I think the the, uh, the hot button there is likely to be abortion, where Trump has been waffling somewhat, and DeSantis signed a, a six-week ban in Florida. Uh, then, you know, making a more practical case that uh, DeSantis is more likely to be elected and will be will um, be able to govern better to actually deliver these results. So, do I think that message in theory could work? Yes. Am I certain it'll work or DeSantis will be able to pull it off? No. So what uh, – DeSantis, it's obvious what he has going for him. I mean he has a, uh, a record in Florida that uh, should delight conservatives. And with a pliant legislature and an overwhelmingly Republican legislature, he's really done a great deal. Aside from that um, – what uh, what do you think he should emphasize as the key difference between himself and President Trump? Well, I think a key dif differentiator is going to be I can get it done, and there will be sort of uh, subsidiary arguments from that. I can win. I'm serious enough to, to do the work and to study to push back against uh, opponents, including in the bureaucracy and I have a, a, a record to, to show. So um, 
I, I think all that makes sense. I mean, he's a, the, the conventional wisdom has turned drastically against him the last two months or so. He's now portrayed as basically a bumbling idiot who can't make eye contact with anyone, which uh, he is a private guy and, and a little bit of an introvert. But the idea that this this moron, you know, won a contested primary in 2018, won an extremely tough, as they, they almost all were until recently, gubernatorial election in Florida, became instantly popular, then forged an independent path on COVID that most of us now uh, acknowledge was was uh, absolutely right, or at least certainly more right than, than other people around the country got it, uh, generated massive buzz around the country, wooed a bunch of, of donors, uh, and, and then won a smashing, you know, re-election campaign, and, and he's just an idiot. <laughs> it's, it's, I find really hard to believe. So I think he, he was clearly overestimated in, in January when it looked as though Trump was going to be weaker than he is now, uh, but clearly also being underestimated now. Well, speaking about being underestimated, I mean, they are scheduling Trump's uh, criminal trial in uh, in New York uh, at the very heart of primary season. I think it's March 25th is uh, Trump has to show up. And he got a lecture from the judge uh, yesterday uh, basically saying, no, no, you have to be there. This is important. I mean, you're standing trial. Uh would any of these uh, ongoing challenges that President Trump has, there's um, yet more $10 million more in defamation charges from E. Jean Carroll, and we have Fonnie Willis and overturning the governor's election, or overturning, pardon me, the presidential election in Georgia, and then Jack Smith uh, apparently looking at maybe wire fraud charges involving some of the fundraising behind January 6th. Uh, any of those problems which no no presidential candidate has ever had to deal with uh, difficulties on this level in, in terms of a court system, is any of that going to hurt Trump or is it just going to make him stronger i i would bet against it hurting him the th this was the and there's been a lot of what what went wrong with desantis conversation the main thing that went wrong was alvin bragg indicted trump clearly on uh, politi politicized charges no one else w would have been hit with these ridiculous uh, felony charges if their name wasn't donald trump and trump took a huge jump up in the polls because Republicans rallied around the flag. That's the main thing that's that's hurt DeSantis. And I would expect that basic dynamic to probably hold true no matter how many charges he faces when and where. Although I, I will say there's a chance that, you know, right at the end when people are, are going to their caucuses or pulling their lever, they might think, you know what, just on the the electability case, uh, a guy with, with this much going on in the legal realm is, is not the best bet to beat Joe Biden or whoever's running on the Democratic side. So maybe right at the end, it, it'll it'll hurt him, but I'm not sure of that. And uh, obviously DeSantis hasn't said anything about it. Do you think that uh, for any of President Trump's rivals for the nomination, uh, their best um, policy regarding some of the charges against President Trump, some of which particularly those surrounding January 6th and uh, and then the documents at Mar-a-Lago, they're, they're 
potentially very serious. Uh, nobody's been out there with rallies chan- chanting, lock him up. No, no, no. And, and no one will, with the exception of maybe a Chris Christie or one or two others, if, if they, they run, I kind of expect Christie to get in the race. But for most Republican voters, the DeSantis people think that the MAGA element of the party, for lack of a better phrase, is 80 percent of the party. Um, not not hardcore necessarily, but sympathetic. So the trick for DeSantis is how does he woo enough of those people who voted for Trump twice, who like him, who think he did a very good job, who hate his enemies and distrusted enemies? How do you win those people over? So you can make criticisms of Trump, and they're criticisms you're going to have to make. I think DeSantis will have to say that the 2020 election was legitimately won by Joe Biden. You know, if he's going to make a case that, that Trump's not electable, you, you got you got to say that. You can't say he won twice, but now he's unelectable. Um, but otherwise, uh, the legal stuff, I think it's it, everyone's going to have a policy of just steering clear. Okay, so speaking of the legal stuff and speaking of steering clear, we're in the middle of a um, a debt ceiling crisis. And a lot of people are talking about potential catastrophes. Uh, you have just written that the 14th Amendment option, which a lot of Democrats have been pushing, is absurd. So what is the right approach to the debt ceiling crisis? And uh, what should um, DeSantis say about it tonight to help his campaign? We'll be right back with Rich Lowry of National Review coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. This is The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, while we're here speaking with Rich Lowry, who is editor in chief of National Review, uh, also writes for Politico and the New York Times, and is one of the leading voices of the American right. There's no question about it. Uh, and we're talking about uh, Ron DeSantis and his announcement of candidacy tonight. The American economy. And really, the welfare of the country, at least if you believe some of the authoritative opinions that have been out there, is teetering on the verge of a true calamity where all of a sudden interest rates would go up for paying on our national debt, for anybody trying to get a home mortgage or to buy a new home. and. We could have a, a very real economic disaster where people are looking about uh, the New York Times, for instance, has projected that there would be at least eight million jobs lost and uh, a, a, a more painful recession in terms of actually shaving off parts of the gross domestic product than in 2008. Uh, Rich Lowry, where do you stand? Do you take some of these warnings seriously if they fail to get an agreement and to get this debt ceiling uh, raised? Sounds a little dire to me, but no one has ever gotten rich uh, based on my economic forecast, Michael. <laughs> I, I would say that the, 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 the Treasury plan the last time around in 2011, 2013, when congressional Republicans were fighting with Obama 
on this was that if the threshold was passed, you would uh, you pay all the debts and then you'd cut cut spending. Now, cutting spending radically and immediately is disruptive, but that that in itself you know, shouldn't shouldn't immediately cause you know a, 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 a sharp recession like in in 2008 2009. But there will be turmoil in the markets. People will be freaked out, and the stock market will go down. Uh, thousands, thousands of points. That's why I think even if we pass the deadline and some of that transpires, the, the pressure to to pass the the compromise, whatever it is, will be pretty strong, and it'll it'll probably happen. But there is going to have to be a compromise, and that's where the, the the Biden White House has been foolish and mistaken from the beginning. They thought Republicans would be so incompetent in the House they wouldn't be able to pass a plan, and they could just say pass a clean uh, debt deal, and that's it. That's not the situation. McCarthy and his his caucus have uh, um, performed really well so far. You know, the the, the trick is the real trick is going to become though when the White House inevitably offers them some sort of quarter loaf, half a loaf, whatever it is, and they go back and try to pass it. And that's where McCarthy is going to have some trouble because they're going to be members of his caucus who are just going to say no. Then he has to go to Democrats. Will they try to vacate the chair? Um, I, it, it depends, you know, if, if you, if you were, uh, I was talking to a Republican Senator the other day, said if McCarthy tried to pass a clean debt limit, that would be the end of them. And, but th- this will be less than that and probably something, I mean, it'll be more than that. Um, and I, I, maybe the majority of his caucus will still be with him, but it's going to be, it's going to be painful and difficult and will put his speakership in some some risk, but I, I hesitate to predict exactly where it'll go. And DeSantis is going to be asked about this tonight. Uh, by the way, the guy, the guy who is uh, going to be presiding and asking the questions, a guy named David Sanders, who just donated fifty thousand dollars to the DeSantis mm-hmm. campaign. Uh, so, what should DeSantis say about how his fellow Republicans? He's uh, trying to become the leader of the Republican Party on his way to becoming the leader of the whole country. Uh, but what should he say to his fellow Republicans about how to handle this? I think this one is easy. You're a presidential candidate. You, you just say, I, I back McCarthy and what, what he's doing, and Joe Biden is being irresponsible, and we're spending too much money. Uh, and then you don't need to you, – you're not the one who has to – whip the votes in, in the House or uh, be in the room dealing with the nitty-gritty of the negotiation. So you, so you just sort of 30,000 feet it, and that's that's what I would, would expect him to say. And what about the the idea that uh, playing catch-up uh, in terms of the strategy state by state, do you hold with the conventional wisdom that uh, Trump – uh, really has to win both Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, and if he doesn't, with the expectations, with the way they are now, he could be in trouble. Yeah, I think if he loses Iowa, he, he'll he'll be in trouble. Um, it may be to to you know to knock him out. DeSantis has to win both Iowa and New Hampshire, but I, I think he he certainly needs to win one, and and the one where he, DeSantis seems stronger is is Iowa. So I, I think if DeSantis or someone else, you know, this thing could always evolve in unpredictable ways, who's not Donald Trump, wins Iowa, then it's on. Then you can have a month-long um, knockdown, drag-out fight that might go all the way to the convention. Trump wins Iowa. It's hard to see 
how he loses New Hampshire, he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, which has never happened before um, in a, a contested race. Well, then it's, I mean, it's really hard to see how it can be stopped. So uh, Iowa's a big deal. Every indication is that the, the DeSantis people realize that and are going to make massive investments there. And, yeah, I mean, they're talking about hiring uh, 1,600 people to work on the ground in Iowa alone. And with a boot camp called Fort Benning and all of that um, going on. In in terms of the uh, uh, Republicans winning the popular vote, which of the Republican candidates do you think, I mean, regardless of who can win the Republican nomination, would have the the best chance of becoming one of those very rare Republican nominees who actually wins not just the presidency and the Electoral College, but the popular vote of Americans. It'd, it'd be nice to do again, wouldn't it, uh, for yeah. the GOP? I think anyone who's not Trump would have a, would have a chance uh, against, against Joe Biden. I mean, the Democrats are making a risky bet with Biden in a couple ways. One, obviously, his health, not that we, we wish any ill on him, but uh, something could happen uh, terrible any day. And then the generational matchup, it doesn't matter against Trump, uh, obviously, even though Trump seems much more energetic than than Biden. They're both um, older men. But against a DeSantis or a Tim Scott, the generational contrast alone, you know, could be enough to defeat uh, Biden. So uh, I I think anyone who's not Trump would have, have a shot of getting there. And it would be very good for the party and for the country if they they got there just because you know electoral vote uh, victories are legitimate but if you do without the popular vote it, it just creates this call suspicion and paranoia well it does especially at a time when we have so many problems with people and faith in american institutions and the american system uh, rich lowry uh you can read his column it's linked up at our website at michaelmedved.com about ron DeSantis and he's alive uh that and more coming up on the medved show godspeed to you and happy memorial day weekend coming up are you feeling tired is your stomach upset and you- And you're the devil. You're you're the big Hitler. You're listening to the Michael Medved Show. Well, if uh, I am the big Hitler, then I should uh, draw some admiration and support from uh, Sai uh, Farshit uh, Kandula. He's that uh, 19-year-old guy who may be a little bit troubled, who planned to take over the government by killing Joe Biden and crashing his rented U-Haul twice into the White House fence and then jumped out of his car and he was waving a swastika flag. And uh, the report says that when Secret Service agents uh, asked Candula about a flag with a swastika that he removed from his backpack and began waving, uh, he uh, said that he had bought it online because Nazis have a great history. Uh Uh-huh. This according to the court document. This guy's 19. He was on his track team and student council in high school in Chesterfield, Missouri. Um, He uh, (laughs) 
one of his teammates on the school track team with Condola, whose name is Arian Barfield, said he was nice and chill. Well, of course he was. Uh, that's what he said in a Facebook message to NBC News. Uh, so Kandula not only said that Nazis have a great history, he also allegedly said that he, had, quote, admires their authoritarian nature, eugenics. That, of course, is breeding people as if they were animals. Uh, and their one world order, that's in quotes. That's uh, what the document states, adding that Kandula identified Hitler as a strong leader that he admires. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and caring. Well, maybe a little bit disappointed by the performance of Sai Kandula. He uh, allegedly, uh, he told authorities he had been planning the attack for six months and detailed the plans in a green book. He stated his goal was to get into the White House, to seize power, and to be put in charge of the nation. The, uh, when agents asked how Kandula would seize power, he stated he would kill the president if that's what he had to do and he would hurt anyone that would stand in his way. Um, I, uh, I think he, he probably is, is looking at a, <laughs> a fairly substantial uh, risk of imprisonment and, uh, and, and probably uh, a need for some um, mental, mental health treatment, uh, despite the fact that he was allegedly nice and chill. Yeah, I mean, again, he had been planning this for six months. One of the things that is very fortunate is that there were no explosives in that U-Haul uh, that he rented. He was well-armed, apparently, but um, the, the, the idea of somebody... It, it just it raises the need for people, particularly in their teenage years, to uh, uh, try to um, to keep an eye on people like this. Very fortunate that no one was harmed, no one was killed. And uh, though I think that uh, obviously this is going to have an impact on uh, Mr. Candula's life. Uh, yeah, he was a nice Nazi, nice and chill. Great. Uh, federal prosecutors also have proposed a seven-year prison sentence for Richard Bigo Barnett, Barnett, who was one of the most iconic Capitol Hill rioters back on January 6th. He was photographed putting his feet up on a desk in House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's suite of offices. And he jotted her an insulting note in which he referred to her as a um, B-I-O-T-C-H. And uh, the, the problem for which he would serve a seven-year term is not because he insulted Nancy Pelosi. It's because he uh, broke into the 
to the Capitol building and, uh, and, and broke into her office. Uh, there is, meanwhile, uh, there, there are victories and defeats in uh, uh, going on in cultural matters. Uh, there's one big victory. The Hill is reporting, uh, everyone is reporting today, that uh, Ford has made the decision to keep AM radios in vehicles uh, amid lawmaker pressure. Ford Motor Company announced that it is keeping AM radio available in its vehicles following pressure from lawmakers to keep AM radio in its products. And uh, even in, uh, they're going to be making it available in Ford for some of the cars that they have produced in the interim that do not include AM radio for people to go in and get the AM uh, radio installed. That's a good thing. Not such a good thing is the situation with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, the, uh, uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal by Matthew Hennessy, and uh, it, it points out the Los Angeles Dodgers are in a pickle. It started with a bad call by the front office to honor a group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at the team's annual Pride Night. Together, we'll continue to knock down barriers and foster an atmosphere of acceptance for all. Dodgers executive Eric Braverman said in a statement, not everybody felt accepted. Catholics have long known what the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are about. They describe themselves as a leading-edge order of queer and trans nuns, and they have no connection to any real Christian denomination. They are, for the most part, male drag performers specializing in what Rolling Stone magazine calls Campy Nun Cosplay. Members of the group uh, go by names like Sister Jezebel of the Enraptured Sling and Sister Shalita Corndog. At Easter, they host Foxy Mary and Hunky Jesus contests. One imagines that Pride Night at Dodger Stadium might be uh, a hairy, fleshy affair. Um... LGBT groups, uh, when the Dodgers got protests from a number of Catholic organizations and from the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles, led by Archbishop Jose Gomez, uh, about them, they were not only going to be featuring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, they were giving them an award as local heroes for all of their public service. Uh, but they they don't say anything about what that public service is other than uh, dressing up as women and uh, as nuns with some insulting all-white face paint makeup. Um, the LGBT groups were upset when the Dodgers responded to the pressure from Catholic groups and uh, they they had de declined to give the award they were giving and then it says the team went to the bullpen a second time uh, and rescinded the rescindment the drag sisters are back in the ball game um, and Matthew Hennessy writes and I think he's correct most Americans are happy to live and let live 
the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have their agenda, and in a free country, that's all fine and good, but why do the Dodgers need to let Sister Taint a Virgin prance around the bases looking like a flabby Kirk Gibson in Habit and Cornet? Uh, honoring them, well, there's, there's also this issue at Target. Why be held... And on the Michael Medved show, this involves uh, not only one of the uh, world's leading chains of stores, a chain of stores that has most recently been in the news because of their problems with shoplifting. I'm talking about Target stores. And uh, they have lost literally tens of millions of dollars. The the story, America's turn toward lawlessness is nowhere more evident than at retail stores, writes the Wall Street Journal, where these days even toothpaste is often under lock and key. Now Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target Corporation, has put a number on the cost of inventory shrinkage, which is mostly theft, $500 million in lower profits this year. Okay. Now they have another problem. Uh, the problem is the designer behind one of Target's brand partnerships for Pride Month was revealed to have an affinity for Satanism. Ab Pralin, a brand out of the United Kingdom and headed by self-proclaimed gay transgender man known as Eric, has had a collaboration in the works with the retailer for roughly a year. The collection from Abpralin includes a sweatshirt that reads Cure Transphobia and Not Trans People, a tote bag that reads Too Queer for Here, and a messenger pack that reads We Belong Everywhere. Among Abpralin's other apparel are images of pentagrams, horned skulls, and references to devils. <laughs> a Satan respects pronouns, reads one uh, previous design featured on T-shirts and uh, pins. These items have even been known to be sold at London's Satanic Flea Market during December, which uh, the brand promoted on its social media. Sexy and sassy. Uh, Eric, the designer of uh, all of this line of clothing and accessories, says being called a demon is something I can cope with, and the idea of a trans demon is pretty damn cool. Most of my work focuses on gothic or dark and satanic imagery juxtaposed with bright colors and LGBT plus positive messages. Dare to be different and dare to really be flamboyant. Yeah, the, uh, mixing together trans clothing and Satanism. Uh, being called a demon is something I can cope with, he said. Uh, I imagined what it would be like for a younger version of myself to see something more specific, more tailor-made than a lackluster rainbow flag. I wanted to create a range that would embrace younger me and tell him that who he is is more than okay, that being trans is special and wonderful, and that the closet is not made for him to thrive in. Okay, and then the headline uh, over uh, the last couple of days, Target removes pride items after conservative firestorm, par sparking uh, 
criticism from LGBTQ groups. And, of course, this inevitably involves politics. Why? Uh, because uh, Target uh, allegedly pulled the Pride products, including the Satanist Pride products, uh, due to pressure of a boycott. Uh, they they actually then corrected that. The head of Target, Brian Cornell, CEO, said, no, it's not because of threats of boycotts. It's because of threats against the lives of employees, death threats. And that led the governor of California to offer our tweet of the day. Turn page now to the Internet. I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. Change his password so he no longer has access to his Twitter feed. Did you send the tweet? I did not send that tweet. My system was hacked. I was pranked. Donald Trump hasn't tweeted at us once, and I'm starting to get worried about him. So we have a new tweet. All right. Can I do the honors? Stand by. Tweet alert. Okay, the tweet of the day is from Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, uh, with presidential aspirations, if anything involving a health crisis or anything like that uh, moves Joe Biden out of the Democratic nomination, but who knows. In any event, Gavin Newsom tweeted, uh, CEO of Target Brian Cornell selling out the LGBTQ plus community to extremists is a real profile and courage. This isn't just a couple of stores in the South. There is a systematic attack on the gay community happening across the country. Wake up, America! This doesn't stop here. You're black, you're Asian, you're Jewish, you're a woman, you're next. Uh, actually, I don't think anyone has objected to <laughs> anything about Asian, black, female, or Jewish clothing lines. I mean, I'm not even sure what an Asian clothing line would look like. Well, they sell kimonos or something. I, uh, the, uh, uh, the idea that uh, uh, what the people objected to was the mixing of LGBTQ products. And, and by the way, they said that they didn't take them out of the stores entirely. They said, we just move them to the back of the store so it wouldn't be so much in people's face. Uh, Jeremy makes a very good point, and I hadn't thought of this, is that the brilliant cartoon series in South Park, uh, they have uh, sequences, and they've had a number of them, that show Satan. And Satan, uh, who is uh, uh, often referred to as the Prince of Darkness, has ruled over hell for millennia, but on South Park, Satan is gay. And uh, does uh, any boycotts or reactions on that? Uh, no, no. Uh, there, there is also a, a piece today by, uh, by George Will, which is absolutely brilliant. And uh, the headline on his column in the Washington Post says... Uh, uh, ambivalent about abortion, the American middle begins to find its voice. And he writes that democratic persuasion demands patience regarding the meandering path of public opinion, which often changes in fits and starts. The 11 months of political fermentation since the overturning of Roe 
have revealed the necessity of politics, which is the business of accommodating differences. So how do you accommodate differences on something like abortion, which you either think it's right or wrong? Uh, there are people who believe that abortion is the equivalent of murder. There are also people who believe that abortion should be a fundamental human right. Uh, George Will writes that the loudest voices on both sides have been loud throughout the five decades when voters' voices didn't matter because the judiciary rather than legislatures made abortion policy. But the loudest voices have never been the most numerous. An ambivalent majority is permanently troubled by the irresolvable tension between a woman's claim of personal autonomy and the inviability of personhood. A life that is human begins at conception. This is a tenet not of abstruse theology, but of elementary biology. This life with a distinctive genetic imprint will reach adulthood absent a natural mishap or a deliberate intervention to end it. The vexing question is, when, if ever, should personhood be ascribed to that life? With legal protections enveloping it regardless of the woman's preference. And, uh, and then he writes, in the year of states debates that the court ignited last June, an American majority seems to have reached apocalypse fatigue and the majority has begun to find its voice. Most Americans consider banning all or almost all abortions extreme. A perhaps larger majority believes that it is at least as extreme to permit abortions of viable fetuses, those able to survive outside the womb, up to the end of the third trimester when abortion is indistinguishable from infanticide. Displaying their situational ethics, progressives, most of whom are abortion rights extremists, are denouncing as imperial the Supreme Court that surrendered custody of the abortion issue. But the court, by doing so, might have put the nation on a winding but ascending road to widespread adoption of abortion policies that split hitherto unsplittable differences. And uh, I think that idea that most Americans are on the middle, they uh, want abortion to be uh, allowed under certain circumstances, but not under every circumstance. And by the way, he doesn't add, certainly not funded by the government. Uh, speaking about the abortion issue and many others, uh, we're going to be speaking to a candidate for president uh, who is getting more attention, Larry Elder, coming up in this greatest nation on God's screen.